that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, good morning. I was told I was honored um, while I was, uh, I have a regular custom of making sure I don't have to end the sermon early for any forces of nature or demonic powers that would impress themselves on coffee consumption or something like that. So uh, all of a sudden I hear big round of applause. And uh, I'm like, well, that, that, I was not expecting that. Uh, come out and ask my wife, what did we applaud for? And she said, you. Uh, so I join you. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Um, joining that applause. No, that sounds arrogant. <laughs> but either way, no, thank you for um, that into the webs as well. I appreciate you guys. I actually would do just as much to honor them and, and their leadership in this church as well. Um, well, let's start a new series, shall we? Let's pray. Father God, I pray for you to show us what it means to be more than simply creator, more than simply sovereign Lord, more than even Savior. And you might show us the depth and the power of what it means to be called your friend. That you extend yourself as a friend to humanity. And in my opinion, or at least I'm guessing many of our opinions in the room, that's really glib and really trite because friendship is really glib and trite in our culture. But in your scriptures, you depict it as anything but that. So in order to receive the depths of what you are communicating in that, then you have to do the work of reordering our minds and our hearts around how you've set the world to be, um, rather than how at times our culture very beautifully sets uh, our culture to be, and at times um, misses what you've made and misses what you've called good. And one of those areas may be less of a hot topic issue in the world, but is very much so something we're not aligned with you, is a view of a deep and powerful and robust view of the intimacy of friendship. And so, Lord, in order to reorder our hearts, we ask for your spirit to do that. Um, in order for you to work, we ask for you to be present, and we simply um, wait expectantly for you to move and to come near to us um, as a friend comes near. And so we invite you and your spirit in this moment. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The ministry of Mother Teresa is second to none and just how it's known in our culture and our time. She spent her life giving herself and caring for poverty in Calcutta. And when asked what is the worst disease you have ever come across of all the things that you dealt with, she responded fascinatingly. She said, hey, the worst disease I've encountered is not leprosy, is not AIDS, it is not cancer. The worst disease, in Mother Teresa's opinion, that plagued humanity was loneliness. It's 
bad news for our culture because sociological data continues to come in. Most recent polls, 50% of Americans claim a part of this study that they have no significant connections with their friends. A quarter of Americans, and again, every time you poll, you get the halo effect, you get things like a little bit better because people are self-reporting. A quarter of Americans self-report as not possessing a single friend. This is coming to a point where it's recognized globally as a health crisis. The UK, which appoints ministers to, I mean, that's what their government officials are called. They administer to the people, and they change their ministry titles or change their ministry positions on a regular basis to support the change of culture, the change uh, of just how the world functions. In January of this year, Britain announced that they will appoint their first minister of loneliness. There is, where have we come to that we are appointing ministers of loneliness? Because they're simply recognizing what is true. They're not creating this idea. They're, they're saying, hey, we look around our, our country and we're noting that more and more people are, are not only just experiencing loneliness, but it's affecting people's health, they've noted in the country, that not communicating deeply with other people, which they found a whole group of, of Brits who would say that's true of them, has caused more dementia, more decline in health, and has been endangering to health at the equivalency of smoking 15 cigarettes each day. And, and so this seems crazy because we live in a time and a place that is experiencing the reurbanization of the world, meaning that more and more people are moving themselves out of unurban areas and moving to urban areas. And we're all a part of that because the U.S. is no different than most of the world, that all people that live in otherwise, you know, all across the state are moving more towards the urban centers of their state. And not only are they moving towards the urban centers of the state, they're moving increasingly towards the most densely populated pockets of their city. And so since we are a church that exists in the downtown area, and many of you live in either the, what is traditionally called downtown Indianapolis, or at least the downtown neighborhoods that surround it, you would find yourselves very much so a part of those statistics. We're surrounded by people. Similarly, we have more technology that is connecting us with more people that, I mean, you could be connected to high school friends and college friends or people from a former time in life. You can be connected with Virtually anyone who has the capacity to own any piece of technology, you can look at them face-to-face -face anywhere on the world through FaceTime, Skype, whatever you have. But, of course, we know the actual problem is not the lack of the quantity of relationships, but it's much more a quality of relationship problem, or as I have just coined the term, the crowded room loneliness problem that many of us who would describe ourselves as feeling some level of loneliness or disconnect with relationship would probably say at some point when we're talking about it, some phrase like, I feel like I'm standing by myself in the middle of a crowded room. I actually described myself like this as early in documented ways as middle school. I, there was a project that we had to create 
that was a self-portrait, but it wasn't for our art class, it was actually for our health class. And it was a self-portrait using like just not your actual drawing your face, but just like symbols or representations of you. And I remember one of the things I drew was a huge smile, a giant, almost insanely large smile. It was to communicate, hey, I'm happy, I'm good, I'm content. But then around the side, you also wrote, they had you write different things that were true about yourself. And one of the things they wrote was your biggest fears. Number one fear I listed was loneliness. And that picture was not only representative of me, I actually think that's really representative of a lot of us right now. We have really big smiles portrayed as images that put forward a sense of we're good, we're content, we're happy, we're fine. But underneath, we have a deep and profound loneliness. And so, this is not just true of the world and the church is somehow like free from this. This is actually what one pastor, Von Roberts, in his book, True uh, Friendship, who's actually from the UK, uh, he says about relationships as he's observed them both in Europe and America. I don't have this on the screen. You'll have to follow along. He says, we live in an interwoven networks of terminally casual relationships, speaking of the church. We live with this delusion that we know each other, but we really don't. We call our easygoing, self-protective, and often theologically platitudinous conversations fellowship, but they seldom ever reach the threshold of true fellowship. We know cold demographic details about one another, married or single, a type of job, number of kids, general location of housing, etc. But we know little about the struggle of faith that is waged every day behind well-maintained personal boundaries. One of the things that still shocks me in counseling, even after all these years, is how little I often know about people I have counted as true friends. I can't tell you how many times I'm talking with friends who have come to me for help, and I have been hit with details of difficulty and struggle far beyond anything I would have predicted. Privatism is not just practiced by the lonely unbeliever. It is rampant in the church as well. So this is a growing concern in the world. And it's also a growing concern for our church. When we first sat down to consider a preaching series on friendship, I thought what probably most of what you would think when hearing that, I, as already described, view friendship as such a low priority. I mean, in a lot of ways, I haven't changed much from middle school. And there's lots of reasons for that deprioritization in our culture. I mean, we have all these cultural forces to tell you to be successful, tell you to be independent, tell you to be productive. Very few are telling you to have deep, robust relationships with friends. There's also the technological problem I've already mentioned. We have more technology that is creating more and more relationships that are crossing geographical time and space, which actually, even in the Bible, you see, I mean, in the writings of Paul, a robust sense of relationships that cross time and space. I mean, that's, that's fine, but we are exclusively being disconnected to a presence in our world of exclusively having relationships that cross space and, and losing the fact that we're incarnate beings. We have the desire to be seen and touched and, and be in personal proximity and intimacy. And 
tech has given us, yes, connection out there, but it's continually robbing connection in our own houses, in our own marriages. I mean, all the sociological data will say that as people take time to disconnect from tech, after three days, they begin experiencing more endorphins simply by making more sustained eye contact with people than we typically do. And then beyond that, intimacy has become so sexualized in our culture that we have no concept for deep, robust, intimate relationships outside of if they can appear in a marriage or a marriage-like relationship. But we don't have a category for the depth of relationships that you see between men and women all over the scriptures. I mean, the crazy thing about this idea is that it's not like the Bible is silent about it. The Bible deals with friendship more than any other relationship, more than marriage, leaps and bounds, more than parenting. There is a discussion of friendship that that happens narratively. I mean, you have David and Jonathan. You have Ruth and Naomi. You have Jesus and his 12 disciples, who then will even talk about a more intimate relationship that he shares amongst three of them. And then even amongst those three, John will describe himself as the most beloved disciple. And he seems to be an authority of just talking about the love of Jesus and what Jesus was like. And then you get, as I've already mentioned, you get Paul and Timothy, but then Paul who just constantly is writing letters and every single epistle, every single letter at the back of the book of the Bible is going to be filled at the end of like, hey, say hello to this person and greet this person and greet that household and, and, and tell that woman and all that she did for the gospel, I'm still grateful for her. I still pray for you. I still care for you. There is a robust sense of relationships that just flow out of Paul every time he writes to a city that he's been. And then you get even God himself being described in relation to Abraham in the book of Isaiah. As it says that he will be faithful to Jacob and, and to Israel because they are the offspring of Abraham, my friend. It'll talk about Moses. And Moses spoke with God face to face as a man speaks with his friends. It will talk about Jesus who's described in the Gospels as coming and eating and drinking with sinners. That's the relationship of friendship. That's the language of friendship in that culture. To eat and drink with, friend, or with sinners is to be friends of sinners. That's where that phrase comes from. It's how we describe Christ himself. The Bible is robustly dealing with a topic that just doesn't really make our top things to do in a day or a week. And so I just started, like, I think as we think about this series, I just started talking with some of our pastors, and we started getting just these sketches of people in our minds that, like, who are we preaching to? I mean, I always want to put flesh and blood, and sometimes it's individual people that I'm thinking of, but sometimes it's just, like, sketches of people that I just know are there. I just don't have an individual name or face to them. And some of the sketches I just started thinking about were, just a single guy or a single girl. Typically, 
the if you press into all the statistics about lack of robust relationships, it gets even really uglier on the on the male side of things. But just maybe living with roommates, maybe living alone, um, just finding themselves increasingly well, described in those statistics, no deep connections with friends, or maybe describing themselves as having no friends at all. I mean, we're seeing now trends of, of people, again, whether they live alone their entire lives or just live alone for seasons of their life, and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but also that just being reflective of their lack of robustness in their relationships and, and, and particularly seeing men grow to points where they just learn to function, where they're pursuing work, pursuing career. Again, this can be both men and women, um, just going with some typical norms. And then that person gets to a certain age where the midlife crisis comes. But now instead of exploding out to this sense of that they've been so starved for relationships, often they implode in on themselves. And they become more walled up to the rest of the world because I can't enter somebody into the messiness of my life now. I've gone so long. I've learned how to go without it. And as well as I just, I just can't open up all the floodgates to someone at this point. And so that's when you see some really, really destructive behavior start to develop. And I also started thinking of moms, of small children. I mean, not just moms, moms and dads. The crazy thing is, again, it's not lack of relationship. Sometimes it's just lack of the substance of relationship. And, and there's a, something just really lonely about the season of raising small children particularly if you're doing it mainly full-time. I mean, you find yourself, again, always around people, but there's a huge difference between what it's like to have an intimate relationship between a mother and a child or a father and a child, which, yes, are, are a picture of intimacy, but in some ways you're raising a child up in the way that he or she should go, and you don't enter in in this place that you can share your soul and share your struggle and, and care for each other well. There, there's, there's something that... Often you can see parents of small children getting themselves very isolated. I remember last summer when we had our third child in the spring and we go on vacation in the summer. And I remember at the end of vacation, me saying to my wife, I'm really scared of going back because I feel so alone right now. And it's not because we were in unhealthy season. It was just the season that we were in. And we found ourselves like often working back to back or shoulder to shoulder to you know, me take the older ones and, and, and care for them as many times as I could, but then having to work when my wife would take them all. And then, of course, my wife, you know, nursing and caring for our infant child. And, and our interactions became more like high fives of like tag teaming in and out of going into the octagon of life. And I just felt, I said, I, I'm around people all the time. I mean, literally, if I went to the bathroom, little fingers would show up under the door. I was around people all the time, but I had a deep and profound loneliness. And I think of, you know, people that are coming to a point in age in life where one of the members of a marriage may pass away, or just getting to a point where we realize if friendships are robust or not. It's why marriage people in the midst of marriages always need to be cultivating relationships. They'll tell you that when you get married. But the problem is, is often, you know, 
you get you kids in the mix, you add, you know, just I have all this intimacy with my family, but even within the context of, of marriage and kids, no one person or even five, four, however many people can hold all of the weight of a person's soul. It takes men and women walking alongside you. And I just think about some people that are at the point where maybe, yeah, a marriage might pass away. They might leave, leave a huge vacuum. And in some ways, that's inevitable. That's just true about any relationship that leaves us. But in some ways, I think that that might actually be a larger chasm than it needs to be because we just have no depth of relationships. And then lastly, I think of myself. Again, I haven't changed much from middle school and high school. If left to my own speed and devices, I will focus on the family. I'll focus on the church. I'll focus on all the things I need to do, but I won't take the intentionality or the commitment I need to pursue robust friendships. All of the pastors, as we talked about this series, said, we're horrible at this. (laughs) That we are all people that are not preaching this series from a place of, well, I figured it out and now you can too. We're all preaching from a point of vulnerability and weakness. It's something we need to study for the sake of ourselves. And so, this is the series that we want to put forward that we take this in the next five weeks. And actually, at downtown specifically, it'll be a little bit more broken up. I actually want to take two weeks to lay out a foundation of friendship. And then we're going to have two weeks where uh, one of our church partnerships in Atlanta, Gospel Hope, one of their pastors, uh, is going to come up and, and he was going to be in Indy. And he said, hey, I'd love to just connect and just serve you guys by, by just preaching if you desire. And uh, we talked a little about topics and, and things that he could come in. So he's actually going to come in and be in for two weeks here. Um, and then we'll get back into this series. So it'll be over the course of eight weeks, or seven after today. But um, two will be a little bit time out. I apologize for the herky-jerkiness, but it was an opportunity I wanted to jump in, and I'm excited to sit under Ryan's teaching. But this will be the foundation, these first two. And then we'll get into a lot of practicals, a lot of details, a lot of um, what this looks like in different spheres of life on the other side of that, er- that early July break. But... I want to just say here's the good news to everything. The loneliness that I have just started picking at the scab at for many of us in the room right now that you're experiencing is not a declaration that you're broken. It's actually a declaration of something really beautiful inside of you. That you were created by relationship. You were created by a eternal, relating, and relative God. And you were created for these relationships. The feeling of starvation, if you can reaccess it, though I fear many of us have been in it so long, we've actually stopped being hungry for them, is actually something beautiful about you. Because God in Genesis one and two says he makes all things and they're good and they're good and they're good. And the one thing he says is not good is that man should be alone. And yes, then he makes a woman that's fit for him and they exist in the connection of marriage. And yes, marriage is deeply beautiful and vibrant. Lest we believe that Jesus, who was never married, 
suffered for lack of intimacy and beauty in his relationships, then we can't just chalk up all of it not being good for a man to be alone is that there needs to be marriages happening. No, there's people throughout the church. In fact, the early church was a place where many single people and married people all experienced depth and beauty of intimacy. And it's our hope and our vision for the church to do that again in a culture that is very starving for that. So, to lay out a foundation, we actually can't start with the horizontal relationship. To lay out a beautiful and robust foundation for friendship, you have to start primarily with the fact that we are only what we receive. And therefore, you cannot be friends with anyone until you are first and foremost a friend of God. And that language just rings in my ears of the song, I am a friend of God. And if you have spent any time in the church, you are now rolling your eyes internally or externally at the lyrics of a song that basically say, I am the friend of God. I am the friend of God. I am the friend of God. He calls me friend. And I have often scoffed at the song. And the reason I scoff at it is because I have no framework for the power of those words. Because we just, that's the air we breathe as a culture. We live in a time and a place where, like, yes, we all know that true relation to God is by having a personal relationship to Jesus. But what do we even mean when we say that? I don't think any of us really have a sense of that being something that moves us deeply to our souls. Because here's who it would have really freaked out, the people who would have originally heard that in the scriptures. They, there was all sorts of philosophy that was talked about what it's like to relate to God. None of it was the language of friendship. The most clear picture or, or, or picture or depiction of, of what philosophers or what people of that day would have thought of when it comes to relating to God is probably from um, the, the teachings of Plato, in which he taught or at least collected kind of the wisdom of the day, which was, hey, there is a God force a perfect, immutable God force. And the reason that that he determined that this God force had to be immutable, meaning never changing, and therefore not personal, is because persons change. Persons speak or they move. And and even that was like, hey, no, there's something so perfect about that what has made all things good that, that, that this thing can't speak. It can't move. It is simply an impersonal force. Of course, it, it, to us, brings up the idea of the modern idea of pantheism, of that God is not a person. It is just a force and existence that's in everything. It's in you. It's in me. It's in creation. That God is everywhere. There's nothing that God doesn't touch, but it's not a relationship that's described as a father or, or, or all these other ways, but rather it's described as gravity. It's just everywhere. And then you get the Bible that very uniquely talks about a God in Genesis who will create. But when he creates, he speaks. It describes the ultimate God force. I mean, to say this God was creating saying is that there's no God underneath this. 
If that was how, I mean, you say like, well, wait a second, they had personal gods. They had all those little like polytheism ideas. There was Zeus and Hermes, or you get Jupiter and Mercury, or you know, however you want to go, Roman or Greco, like they had personal gods. But the way that they lined that up in their thinking was that there is an immutable God force, and that God, though not a person, created, and it created these lesser gods. And all these lesser gods were more powerful, and then they created lesser beings, which were like the angels or messengers or all that. And those maybe from there descended human beings and from there descended animals and plants and everything on down the line. There was this hierarchical system because those gods were not ultimate. They were continually battling to be the top. And that's why we might say, oh, Zeus was the top god at one point, but that's why he always had to be on the lookout for other gods to dethrone him because he wasn't the ultimate god. And they all received the power from this god force. But God says, no, in Genesis, I show up as the one who creates. I am the ultimate God force. They would have seen that too. There was nothing above the creator of all things. He was the one who was the preexistent one. He says, hey, the preexistent one speaks. Not only does he speak, it talks about the language of him hovering over the uncreated earth. Theologians and scholars have said it's the same language of a mother bird hovering over its nest. Of a mother and a child. He says, I... I have a relationship to the creation that I have. I'm a person. I'm a being. I'm three persons. And then that God who speaks and forms something that, it has, that he has relationship to then continues in that there's even a point in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve have already eaten of the fruit. They've already said, we won't follow the one no in the world of yes. We want to be gods. We want to be the ones who decide good and evil. That it says God shows up and is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It, it gives this implication that this was just the regular rhythm of God to come and to relate to his humanity. And so we, we get this extremely unique picture of not an impersonal force, but a God who continually goes out and just reveals who he is. That is the point of the entire Bible, by the way. There's one theologian, I really agree with him. He says, hey, do you want to know what the point of the Bible is? We have all these different ideas of what the point of the Bible is. We say maybe it's like, okay, it's ultimately like a list of rules, and it's like what you do or what you don't do to make God happy with you. It looks very much so like the polytheistic system. Can we sacrifice enough? Can we make the gods happy enough to get them to influence all their delegated power that they have from the God for us to do to us? But ultimately he says, no, it's not a book about rules and how to relate to God in that way. It, it's, the others would say, like, it's ultimately a book about, like, how to figure out life, how to navigate the world in such a way where it's like, how do I get a marriage or maybe just a date? I'll back it up to there. Or, like, you know, how do I just even, you know, which job do I pick or where do I move? And you do the whole, like, magic eight ball theory where you flip, you point your finger, and then it's Judas hung himself. And you're like, I don't, well, all right, two out of three. And you... <laughs> use the Bible in a way of like relating to wise living. And there's a whole lot to be said about wise living. But ultimately, the Bible is an increasingly vulnerable revelation of God to his people. That every single page, every single moment as you read, you should be considering what does this reveal about what God is like and how he relates to his people. Even Jesus, why did Jesus come? To die on the cross for our sins. Yes. And no. 
I mean, not no, like he didn't come for that reason. He just came for more than just that reason. If you want to talk to Jesus, Jesus, why did you come? He's going to tell you in John 17 that, that he has come so that we may know the Father. That he says, when you see me, you see God. And that he was breaking into humanity, God becoming human, which again gets even more unique as a perspective of how God relates and how he is a person. But he comes in as a human to show what God is like. And that he says also in John 17 that this is eternal life, that they may know God. Jesus comes, yes, to, to die for our sins. But ultimately you ask him, hey, what's your mission here? It's to show the world what God is like. Because that ultimately is God's desire. It is for him to reveal himself and be known by the world as he knows each and every single piece of his creation. But even the word know, like really kind of like, that jacks with us because we have translation issues. Everyone who's taken any foreign language knows that there's certain words that just don't really translate that well. And so you have to kind of like, get beyond the concept of like, that's just an untranslatable concept. And this is kind of one of those because in the original language, there were multiple words for the word know. And so in their sense, they had a cognitive knowing and they also had a know that Adam knows Eve and they have a kid. And obviously we're dealing with a different sense of knowing. And that wasn't just God was a little prudish and was using a euphemism. It was the sense of like, no, they had a concept that even sexual connection was just a smaller piece of serving a larger framework of knowing someone. That, that a marriage where a man and wife are committed to each other for the rest of their lives, that all things are given to each other, that when they commit in sexual union, it is a larger sphere of things that are going on that is an interweaving of their two souls together that they know each other, that there's things that, that simply I know about my wife and my wife knows about me, or you know about even a close friend that no one will know no matter if they read a thousand books about that person because it's more than informational knowing. We have a concept for informational knowing. I learn more and therefore I know this thing, but there's something different to just actually experiencing it. It's goodwill hunting. If you haven't seen the movie... Matt Damon plays a brilliant kid, like a young guy. I mean, he's out of, you know, high school age. He's beyond that. He's probably doesn't go to college because he's poor. He grows up in South Boston in a rough neighborhood, but he's a genius, just self-made. He reads every book and he retains everything he ever read. He just says he goes to the library and just picks up an entire robust education of the world for 250 in late fees at a library because they discover how genius he is because he's working as a janitor at MIT and one of the math faculty gives a problem that's meant to give the PhD students fits for an entire semester and maybe somebody will solve it by the end of, you know, three, four months. And, and Damon's character, Will Hunting, goes in overnight as the janitor, sees the math problem, works a little bit, solves it within a matter of days. And they do the whole like Cinderella, like we must find the princess who has solved the riddle and they try on the shoe and eventually they find the janitor who is able to solve what the brightest of minds could maybe never do over the course of months in the matter of just thinking it in the back of his head as he swept up and buffed out scuff marks. That they say, okay, we, we need to get this person involved in just forming mathematical theory and, and solving problems the world has always had and never been able to get to because they can't get to this level of, of just see it and understand it. 
And so then the problem is, is he has a record. And so the teacher says, I'll take him under my wing. I'll get him some counseling. But the problem is he goes to all these counselors and he has no ability to make himself known. He knows everything, but he can't reveal himself and open himself open in vulnerability. And so he has a really high guard throughout the whole time. And actually he picks apart different counselors by just finding things that, where he eventually strikes a nerve and then gets them to crack so that they won't see him again until one counselor that he does this with, played by Robin Williams, has the moment where Matt Damon's character, Goodwill Hunting, like, picks at the nerve. But then he also has a moment where Sean, Robin Williams' character, comes back. And he communicates with him, like, hey, I was really, like, upset that you picked my life apart. But, but ultimately, then he said, I was comforted by the thought. And he says this. If I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspiration, him and the Pope, sexual orientations, the whole works, right? But I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. If I asked you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus of your personal favorites. You may have even been late a few times. But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. If I asked you about war, you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breaches, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap, watched him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. If I'd asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, known someone that could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you who could rescue you from the depths of hell, and you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel, to have love for her, be there forever through anything, through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in a hospital room for two months, holding her hand because the doctors could see that in your eyes the terms of visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss because it only occurs when you've loved something more than you love yourself. And I doubt you've dared to love anybody that much. He's getting at a depth of knowledge that far surpasses information. When God comes and reveals himself, when Jesus says, hey, my whole point of coming is so that you might know the Father, it's not just for you to know more information about him. It's for you to experience what Paul writes about in Ephesians 3 and 977 in the Black Bibles if you've closed your Bible. Chapter 3, verse 14 says this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth I love that he gets into measurements, like he wants you to know details, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the depth and the power of what we glibly put into a category of being friends with God. It's so much more than just, 
oh, singing a general song about I am a friend of God. I mean, there's something so powerful that God, the God of the universe, would say, no, I am a person and I desire to relate to you and I desire you to relate to me. That's why Matthew, we just finished the Sermon on the Mount and that Jesus says, there's going to be people who say to me, hey, like I did all this stuff in your name. I did all these wonderful acts of power in your name. But he said, no, you, I never knew you. You never allowed yourself to be known by me. You never allowed, yes, I mean, I knew you. I made you. I know every detail about you. But you never allowed me to know you, like Paul's talking about here. You never let yourself be truly intimate to me. Allow me to be truly intimate to you. There is a level of intimacy that we lack with each other because we can only give what we've received. And we have never allowed ourselves to receive first from a God who gives all good intimacy. And I know, like, we're sitting here being like, okay, great. Like, I, I generally agree that, yeah, like, me just going through the scriptures and just trying to check off so I feel like I did something good that day is not the robustness of relationship that God has for me, but like, what am I supposed to do? I'm not really like on audible speaking terms with God, at least not that he's made known to me and I can't make him do it. And Jesus is no longer here. But that's what Jesus gets at when he, in that portion of John, when he's giving his last just sermon to the disciples and his last prayers, he says like, hey, it's really good news for you that I'm going to go away. Because when I go away, the helper's going to come. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, hey, the Holy Spirit is going to live inside of every person who is called a child of God. We have no clue what that means. The early church and, and just the church throughout history and even the church now, has always had to fight for just taking Scripture and reading it in a way that we're just getting more and more information about God, but yet our hearts have no connection to Him. Our volition, our will has no connection to Him. But rather saying, no, like, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your body and your mind is this whole person experience of Him. It, means, it doesn't mean I don't read Scripture. It just means when I'm reading Scripture, I'm not just trying to get like a little practical nugget to get me through my day. I'm trying to experience Him in it. I'm trying to experience what it's like to actually know Him. I'm trying to put flesh on Him and relate to Him. It's why in prayer, yes, I want to pray about all the things that I'm asking for God for. God says, hey, come relate to me like a good dad who loves to give good gifts to his kids, but also come and just be present with me. I mean, what is vulnerability? It's pursuit. It's, it's yes, knowing more about someone, but also knowing them. But it's also just presence and nearness. I mean, I, I read a book on silence and solitude because I have forever struggled with that discipline. And I just like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing. Am I like meditating on a word or a scripture? Like, what am I doing? Am I just breathing? What's, what's going on here? And the author basically takes the whole first half of the book to say like, no, it's the idea that every single one of us is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we need nothing more to commune with God other than just to slow our busy minds. 
and to try to simply be still and be present and experience a God who has claimed to come and reside within us. It looks like obedience. Jesus says, hey, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. He's not being meritorious. Hey, if you love me, then you'll obey and you'll prove it. He's rather saying, no, all good friendships with anyone change you. If one of your friends shows up today and says, hey, I'm moving tomorrow, I have all my stuff packed, and you didn't know about it until then, you'd be offended because they didn't come and talk to you, they didn't relate to you, they didn't ask you, they didn't ask your opinion about it. Any good friendship I have, it'll change me. I have to allow myself to be changed by my friends, to relate to them. Similarly, if I'm going to relate to God, not as an impersonal force, but as a person, then he's going to change me. He's going to shape my heart, my will, my mind, my body. He's going to continually realign me with the way that he's designed me to be. I have a a moment in all these sketches where I'm thinking of our people, and I'm just thinking, man, how much of our loneliness with the world, and don't hear me wrong, it's not simply just that you relate to God and that you don't relate to humanity. I mean, in fact, even to do the will of God, I mean, 90% of the will of God is actually relating to other people. It's actually primarily through a relationship with God that he will then point you and say, hey, the greatest commandment is to love me with all your heart, soul, and mind, and body. The second is like it, meaning it's it's equal. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's something you just need about, again, being embodied, like having personal touch, having personal eye contact. Yes, Jesus is not here personally in a way that he's physically here to to deliver that, but he said, hey, I'm going to serve my people through my church. That when I receive the eye contact of someone who looks into my eyes and says, this is Christ's body broken for you, this is Christ's blood shed for me, when I receive the hug of a friend that holds me in the midst of my mourning, when I receive the presence of someone who looks in my eyes and says, you are fully forgiven for the sins you've confessed to me, I am receiving the embodiment of God through his church. And so I need relationships with others. But my concern for us is just that so many of us will always never find the full fulfillment in relationships to others because people are finite and they cannot ultimately hold up my soul, even a whole community of them. I mean, there's some things I, people can't know about me just because I am not aware of it myself and I can't reveal it to them. But God knows. To know God will be a way of knowing myself in which that I will now be able to know and share with others in a deep and intimate way. Just how many of us are in moments of loneliness that might be greatly not all taken away like it's just this magic bullet, but might we learn to practice the presence that Brother Lawrence talks about when he says, man, in the midst of being hurried or in the midst of being in a slow moment, in the midst of, of being in active blessing of other people or in the midst of being in sin, We regularly are pointing ourselves to the attention that we are eternally present to God. When I'm sitting and having an intimate conversation with a friend, when you're having an intimate moment in a marriage, you are present to God and God is present to you. And that we learn to experience him as a personal presence who desires for us to be called his friend.
You think, man, that's a lot of initiative I need to take. Actually, no, the initiative has been all God's. That all of this doesn't pre-exist in the fact that I will now do these things, I will now be a friend of God, but rather it is Jesus saying, no, hey, here's true friendship that a man laid down his life for his friends, which is exactly what he has done. All sin that has kept me distant from God has now been fully removed in Christ. All merit that I need to stand before a perfect and beautiful and holy God has now been given to me in Jesus. There's nothing I can do to earn it and nothing I can do to show that I was worthy when I got it. I simply, through all the initiative of Jesus, am given the invitation to come near to the presence of God, as it says in Hebrews. And I can fail at that today and step into it again tomorrow. And I can fail at it partially tomorrow and learn how to step in it again tomorrow night. And I can continually come into the presence of a God, of Jesus, who now says, because I've taken care of everything, I now stand at the door. And whoever would hear me knock and receive me, I will come in and eat and drink with them. The language of friendship. And so, if you believe that, then I invite you to come and take communion with us. Communion is eating and drinking with Jesus. But, but Jesus also says, hey, when you come and take communion, I mean, he has this sermon in John where he says, like, hey, if you're really going to be a part of me, you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Really weird sermon. Didn't, like, you know, hit the top of iTunes, actually. It caused a lot of people to be freaked out. But ultimately saying, hey, there's an intimacy I want to have with you. That's not just me sitting down and cutting up small plates at a gastropub with you. It is being in a meal with you in which you are actually partaking of me. You are bringing me as close to you as the food that goes through your body. And so when you come forward and take the bread in a spiritual way, in a way that the Spirit can make so you are identifying and coming into taking the presence of Christ, taking the intimacy and the friendship extended to you when he says, I stand at the door and knock, and anyone who would open the door, I will come in and dine with them. Everything's been taken care of. He's done all the initiative. It simply takes you receiving that, whether for the first time or the billionth time. Let me pray for us now. Father God, I pray for you to give us in this moment intimacy with you, connection with you. Lord, for people who may have never experienced intimacy to you, that they might experience your invitation for the first time. And for those of us who have found ourselves so familiar with the language of a personal relationship with God that it's lost all power to us, that you would give us a fresh an experience of what it is to have you invite us into relationship and know what you are inviting us to, to know you and be known by you. To find the deepest corners of our soul, not filled with loneliness, but filled with your presence. And to have us then pointed out to others to which we are now reconciled with because you are all our Father. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.